But while you're standing, let's bow our heads and pray together. Living Lord Jesus, come walk amongst us here this morning. Shine in our hearts, one by one by one. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you know who we are, where we have come from, what is going on in our lives, and how much we need you and to hear from you. So in your mercy, Lord Jesus, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts, Lord Jesus, and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, please be seated. And it is a delight to be here, and I, I would guess that most of you know that we had a men's retreat, that is a, a getaway for men, men only. We had about 50-some men gathered out here at the conservatory, out on the Nature Conservatory, out somewhere not too far from here. Some folks got lost coming up from Pittsburgh yet to be at that. But to get 50 men away for uh, half of a weekend is quite a substantial effort. And I want to com commend you all for pulling that off, and especially for Father Joe and Abby, who really did much of the work to make that happen. In fact, at 5 o'clock yesterday morning, Father Joe was up cooking breakfast for the 50 guys. Now, granted, uh, Abby had prepared these fantastic egg souffles. Mm-mm. Did you taste them, guys? You were there. Vic, wasn't that something? Anyway, big deal. And I want to say thank you for including me in that, that I got to be the chap who was speaking to those men, and uh, kind of a hangover to come and speak with you this morning. It's a great opportunity. Looking out over this audience, I see that some of you are in the same station of life that I am. Like coming out of the church and seeing my car not in the parking lot. And the parking lot empty. And uh, my wife always getting on to me for leaving the keys in the car. I said, to leave them in the car means they don't get lost. She said, to leave them in the car is to invite getting your car stolen. And there, the car was gone. And you sort of give yourself the pat down. Bad news. No car, no keys. So I called the police. And say, somebody has stolen my car. I'm embarrassed to tell you but I did leave my keys in the car. I gave them the, the make, color, and license plate. And then I had to call my wife <laughs> and say, please come and get me. 
I said, I left the keys in the car and the car is gone. I mean, what a confession. She said, honey, I drove you to the church. <laughs> I said, well, you'd better come and get me. She said, I will as soon as I can convince the police that I haven't stolen your car. <laughs> what a deal. Well, I suppose by way of an introduction, and given the way I've prayed and set that in place, it is amazing how God, Almighty God, can move in on our lives, no matter what the circumstances, some of them really silly, and some of them very, very important and painful, and come be with us and speak to us and somehow embrace us take, your ha take in your hands your service sheet because I want to direct you to what has already been read here in these passages from the Bible for instance if you turn to page 5 at the top of page 5 you see Jeremiah and this passage from chapter 11 verses 18 through 20 but look how it begins the Lord made it known to me and I knew. That is a profound statement. That the Lord made it known to me and I knew. We live today in an epidemic of agnosticism that is self-declared self-proclaimed and even advocated and preached and taught as if it's the absolute truth for everyone that we cannot know what the truth is about anything. That's what agnosticism is and in particular the truth about God. And so people are willing to live in an agnostic not knowing state with a kind of ambivalence that because they have minds and can think and ask questions they look at the world around them and it certainly looks like it makes sense in this in this regard that the order of it the seasons how our bodies work that I can think a thought in my mind communicate it through my mouth because I have a voice box and it passes through airwaves because without air there is no sound no sound passes through a vacuum and you have eardrums and your inner ear and wouldn't you know it it's connected to your brain so that what was in my brain ends up in yours isn't that amazing how would you like to reckon that that could happen by accident 
I mean, pure chance. All those little bones that make up the inner ear, that you've got an eardrum. So you look at that and you say, there must be some sort of order to this. This didn't just happen by accident, but you've got a world that's hell-bent on convincing you that it did all happen by an accident and that there's no central rationale that makes sense of it all. And here you have God saying to Jeremiah, and therefore through Jeremiah to you, the Lord made it known to me, and I knew. Now I want to take that in that simple statement and move on to the gospel passage to turn the page if you will. And on page 7 you've got the gospel reading. So we'll begin at verse 30 which is where this begins. From Mark 9. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples. In other words, he'd taken them to one side and was spending time just with them to teach them. Away from the crowds, away from the general preaching and teaching, to have a specific time alone with them to teach them. What a privilege. Well, Jesus really is here to teach us this morning, just as we prayed. So it's as if we are a group of people gathered around him for him to teach us. And in those moments, because of the crisis of that time, and his life, and what he had come to achieve, look at what he teaches them. The Son of Man, do you see that's capitalized, he's speaking of himself, is to be betrayed into, the, into human hands and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. So here he's taken them to one side to teach them specifically and they did not get it. So God is seeking to communicate to us. So with Jeremiah he's saying, Jeremiah speaking for himself, he made it known to me and I knew. He opened my mind. I've prayed that God would take my lips and speak through them and your minds and think through them. That was a serious prayer. And for us to really grasp what God is wanting to teach us and to reach out to us individually and personally takes the Spirit of God to really communicate it. It's not just an intellectual issue. More often than not it is a moral issue behind the scene and we often use intellectual argument as a smokescreen for immoral lives that we want to live. 
And when we're trying to talk to somebody about their relationship to Christ or the truth about Jesus, they throw other issues at us. And it looks like, oh, we've got a real intellectual problem here. I don't know that I could answer that. The real problem is not, and mostly is not, an intellectual issue. It's that there are moral and spiritual issues, and intellectual discussion is but a smokescreen to cover up that we don't want God to get through to us and deal with what he has to say. Because we suspect that we are in the wrong, he's in the right, and we are in trouble. And that issue is really often a problem. I mean, it's hard for some of you who are younger right now to believe that I used to be young. In fact, there is a lady here who is in my youth ministry. This, this is worth talking about just for one minute. This sermon might go on, Father Joe, a little bit here. Listen to this. You will not believe what I'm about to tell you. It's almost beyond credibility. A lady here this morning, who's sitting in the pews, knowing that I'd be preaching here in, what, about a month, six weeks, called me up in Pittsburgh. But she dialed the wrong number. She got another lady in Ohio who is also sitting here in the pews. But she didn't get her. She got her answering machine. So she left a message. And the message was, she's speaking to this pastor, John, his name, and would I call and da-da-da-da, whatever the message was, but she left it with the wrong place. So the lady who gets this message picks up the phone and gets a message that's not for her. It's for me. But would you believe it? Because it was this Pastor John, she called back and said, Is it John Guest? And the lady said, Yes. She said, well, when I was a teenager, he was my minister back in Sewickley. I'm getting this from the first lady who received the message. Are you confused? She's telling me the message. But she'd called back this woman and gotten the story and said, you should call her. Here's her number. So I then call and speak to the lady who was in my youth ministry 40 years ago. And those two women are in church here this morning. Can you imagine that? In fact, I'm going to embarrass them. Just This is very spontaneous. Would you both stand up and just turn around and wave to the congregation? Please. Because there they are, right here. Turn right there. See, and they were young once, too. This is by way of intro. Back in the days when I was in my band and doing evangelism, talking to students, I was a minister undercover, already ordained. But I didn't go looking like this. I had hair, Harry Krishna shirt, bell-bottom jeans, big white belt, a guitar, and a band. Can you see the picture? One student came up to me and we were in a conversation together in a group 
It's an astounding deal. He said, he, he wasn't speaking to me, but whatever the students were saying in this discussion that we were having after a performance, he would say, where, he would say, the student, where are you coming from when you say that? And whatever anybody said, that was what his statement was, question, where are you coming from when you say that? So, he didn't know that I had a theological degree and that I had a little background and he just thought I was another rocker just out there. I said to him, hey man, that's the way we had to talk in those days. <laughs> hey man, where are you coming from when you ask that question? He said, I don't know. I said, how do you know you don't know? He said, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> so I said, well, how do you know that you don't know that you don't know? He said, I don't know that I don't know that I don't know. Now that conversation could still be going on. Once he admitted that he knew how it was he didn't know. He was dead meat intellectually because now he's going to have to talk sense. But while he can just keep saying, I don't know how I don't know how I don't know, you could not have a rational conversation with him. So when I say to you that people use intellectual games like that to avoid the issues, I've had that experience over and over and over again. But God does break through. God does communicate and bring personal conviction as to what really is the truth to be able to reveal himself to us. And the miracle of what God reveals to us, given the teaching of Jesus here, is that God did so love the world, to put it in terms of John 3.16, that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But what Jesus was teaching his disciples here is, that the Son of Man, that is he himself, must suffer death on the cross, and three days later, be raised from the dead. Now the disciples could not get that. They didn't really want to hear it and they were afraid. Why do you think they were afraid to ask the question? I mean, if somebody says to you that people are going to take me and execute me, kill me, how do you get into that conversation? Because they thought he was their hero. They were following him as their master teacher. People were flocking to him. They thought he was going to lead, lead Israel to independence from the Roman Empire. Their understanding of who he was and why he had come was purely nationalistic and purely territorial and purely to do simply with the Jewish independence and their freedom to have their own place, their own state without the boot of the Roman army on their necks. That's what they were looking for. And Jesus is saying, 
I'm going to be executed. Men are going to take me and kill me. And then how does it make sense to immediately say, as the text does here, in three days I will be raised. Now with the men, I took the resurrection of Jesus Friday night and Saturday morning and taught from the radical aspect of Jesus walking from the grave alive after being dead for three days that that is absolutely the keystone of all Christian theology and teaching. It's foundational that Jesus rose from the dead. Now here he is prophetically stating that he's going to rise from the dead. He said it, he told them, and he said it more than once. And he had to keep teaching them, because they didn't get it, they didn't know how to compute it. They didn't want to face up to it, it wasn't what they were looking for. And whenever truth comes at us, this is a real fact for most of us here, maybe every single one of us, whenever the truth presents itself, and the truth is not acceptable to us, we either intellectually can't grasp it because it doesn't compute with what we're looking for or expecting or because it becomes offensive to us in some way it means we've got to change our life change our faith habits or whatever find reasons why we don't have to take it seriously Dietrich Bonhoeffer the same Dietrich, bon Dietrich after whom one of Father Joe's sons is named I met him out there Yes, I said, uh, what's your name, young man? He said, Dietrich. Ding! I knew who he was. I said, your father Joe's son. He said, yes. I said, do you know who you're named after? He said, yes, a German pastor who was killed in the Holocaust. Hmm, that's a heavy name. Bonhoeffer said this, once we understand the resurrection... Our lives can never be the same. Once you get it. So that's how we spent our time with the men, especially Friday night, dealing with the intellectual issues and the credibility of the accounts and the communication of those accounts concerning Jesus being alive. And I want to put this in front of you. That when Jesus said he was going to die by execution, that was unacceptable to them. But for him to go on and say that he would be raised on the third day from the dead was like beyond belief. How does that happen? But let me reiterate again for all of us here, men who were there and the ladies who wished they were there. Listen to this. You would not even know that Jesus had been crucified, I'm speaking to you today, you would not even know today that he had been crucified if he had not been raised from the dead. Do you know that the Romans killed thousands upon thousands of men by execution, by crucifixion? Do you know that? Thousands. Line the highways on the Appian Way. Nero actually 
put hot tar, T-A-R, tar, on, well, I speak differently than you on some words. What's tar? Tar. On crucified men and had them lit to entertain his guests at a garden party. Most of us never would even know what crucifixion was had Christ not been crucified. But it was the way of Roman execution. But why we know about Jesus being crucified is that he was raised from the dead. That made his crucifixion absolutely central to our understanding of how God so loved us, gave his son for us, that he died on the cross for us, to bear our sin for us, so that he took our judgment for us, so that we might be forgiven, restored, reconciled to God, cleaned up, transformed, made new, and have a home in heaven. And know it. Not just hope for it, but know it. If God loved you enough, just think with me. If God loved you enough to do that, to send his son, if he loved me enough to do that, would he not want me to know it? To get it? To understand it? To receive it? and build my life on it. That's how serious it is. God took you seriously, took me seriously, took our sin seriously, took our needs seriously, and sent His Son seriously to deal with it. So when Jesus took His disciples to one side, He began to teach them that He must die on the cross. Well, we now know what He was doing there. You will hear these words as we celebrate communion this morning. Father Joe will take the chalice and say, This is my blood, quoting Jesus, of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. That we might be forgiven. That's what God did. This is serious business. But you'd never know any of this if Christ had not been raised from the dead. Now let me share something with you that I did not share with the men. I mean, we just flat out ran out of time. But the statistics are these. And I have a list of them right here, so I'll just take a moment and find them. Here we go. There are 61 major and 270 minor prophecies concerning Jesus in the Old Testament. A major prophecy would be that he was born of a virgin. A major prophecy would be that God would not allow his body to see decay, referring to the resurrection. A major prophecy would be that he was born of the family of David in Bethlehem. A major prophecy would be that he died for our sins. These are majors. A minor prophecy. I mean, I haven't discussed with anybody the difference between major and minor but I think Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem which was prophesied on Palm Sunday for instance would be a minor prophecy because all he's doing is riding on the back of a donkey 
that they were gambling for his garments, this is Psalm 22, at the cross, or that he would be pierced, or his bones not broken, or his parched with thirst, all in Psalm 22. I count those major prophecies, they're talking about the cross. So you've got these numbers here. 61 major, 270 minor prophecies. Now a statistician by the name of Peter Stoner, writing in a book called Science Speaks, has estimated this, given humanity and time, that is the space of time and the number of human beings, try and follow this with me, that for only eight of these prophecies, eight of these prophecies to be fulfilled at one moment in history, one period of time in history, by one man has these odds of being fulfilled. One in ten to the seventeenth power. Now that's more numbers than you want to deal with. Let me explain it in gettable terms. The likelihood of it is this, that if you were to take silver dollars and spread them over Texas to a depth of two feet, you know all Texans think Texas is the biggest state in the whole wide world. Remember hearing one Texan speak to another. Actually, he was speaking to a man from Pennsylvania. And he was bragging. He said, you know, I have myself a big, excuse me, speaking American, but my, I got myself a big ranch. It takes me three days to drive across my ranch. The guy from Pennsylvania said, I used to have a truck like that. <laughs> Imagine Texas with silver dollars to a depth of two feet. One of them is marked and by helicopter is dropped somewhere over Texas. And you go out walking across two feet of dollars and somewhere along the way stoop and pick one up and it's the one with the mark on it. That is one in ten to the 17th power. And that's only eight of the prophecies. I don't know whether they include Jesus speaking of his own death. But that is prophetic. He's telling them that he will rise again on the third day. He said it more than once. And wouldn't you know it? That's exactly what happened. And what that does is authenticate how amazing it is that God comes and reveals himself to us to open our minds and our hearts to his love and what it is that he wants to achieve 
because he's given this statistical analysis which today because we understand it and can look back and see what those prophecies are and marshal them in some sort of order see how many there are estimate how many people there are across whatever space of time and that Jesus fulfilled them all of them in his lifetime And it's one of those evidences that the resurrection is for real. Intellectually, it's hard once you amass the evidence to walk away from Jesus, except you want to do it deliberately. Because once you get it that he is alive, then you get it that he's really here and does come looking for us one at a time and cares about us individually and has that capacity and has that kind of love a number of years ago there was a a, a wonderful men's movement much bigger than our 50 men our 50 men would have been in on this it was called promise keepers and across the United States of America Tens of thousands of men gathered in football stadia to hear people preach. I got to speak at several of those. It's a real high, Father Joe, to stand in Minneapolis in the Metrodome there and speak to 50,000 men about Jesus. And it was a fantastic movement well I read this account because being one of the speakers I got reports of whatever happened one place or another and this was about four men from San Antonio traveling to Irving Texas for this promise keepers conference and they had to park a long way away from Texas Stadium just because of the numbers and after parking their car, they headed for the stadium and they passed a fast food restaurant, decided to grab a sandwich, tied them over. An unshaven man with worn and soiled clothing peered through the window and saw the four men eating. When the four men came out of the restaurant, he stopped them and explained that he hadn't eaten that day and had no money. He did not ask for money, but asked if they would help him by buying him a burger and coffee. Since he was not asking for money, they told him to come on in, and they'd buy him a sandwich. The four men sat with him as he ate his meal and listened to, and he listened to them talking about the agenda at the conference. The man asked about promise keepers, and asked if he could possibly go with them to the meeting. They said if he really wanted to come, they would try to get him into the sold-out stadium. While walking to the meeting, one of the men asked the man about his southern accent. The man explained that he was born and raised in Alabama, and that he left his family 15 years ago because he was not good for them. He said he was unemployed and hadn't been able to hold a job for a long time and decided it would be better for them to get out of their lives and not be a burden to them. He traveled around during those years, a job here, a job there, ended up in Texas, 
Then one of them mentioned that they had seen men at the meeting wearing sweatshirts with Alabama printed on the front. Guys would come with all the same color shirts so they could find each other, stay together. And that's what had happened. Wouldn't be surprised if they were crimson shirts. And maybe they would see them that evening so the man could visit with somebody from back home. Well, after arriving at the stadium, the four men and the transient did locate the men from Alabama. And they went and introduced themselves. After visiting a few moments, one of the men from Alabama pointed to the transient and said to him, You're my father. Come on home. Everything is fine there. Come on home, Dad. Now what are the chances of that? One derelict on the street meets four guys on their way into a stadium. They run into the folks from Alabama and he, the transient, is the father of one of those men. And the invitation, come on home. It's as if Jesus is walking amongst us looking for just one. None of you look like transients to me. But you may be spiritual transients. Spiritually starving. And Jesus comes and says, Come on home. Come on home. Let's pray together. See Jesus. See him in your mind's eye as if he were standing at the front of our church this morning. Hear him say to you, Come to me, all of you who are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. Come to me. And even as you hear him say that, you think he can't mean you, he must mean someone else must be someone else here. But then Jesus walks out into the congregation. Now he comes to your pew. And he comes to you. He is alive. He is here. as you look at him and you hear him say come on home to you 
and you look into his face and you can't believe it's you he is speaking to and he's looking at you and he reaches out his hands to you and you see that they are scarred with the nail prints and he says come on home my father wants you I want you Let me speak to him on our behalf as if you were speaking to him just by yourself. So this is between you and him. And in your own heart, say to him, Dear Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for seeking me out. And the stuff that's going on in my life is so painful and so difficult. There really is nowhere else for me to turn but to you. But thank you that you've already come to me. And knowing what I'm dealing with, Extend yourself, extend your hand to me. And I ask you, dear Jesus, please come into my life. Drive out the darkness and the doubt. Assuage the pain, the hurt and the anger. I need you, Lord. Come in and forgive me. Whatever it is that stands between me and you, of which I am so deeply ashamed, forgive me. Fill me with yourself, with your spirit, with your love. Fill me with your peace, Lord. Fill me with your hope. Thank you for loving me so much and for giving me this opportunity to surrender to you and to begin again with you and to leave church this morning with a new hope, a new enthusiasm. Thank you, Lord Jesus.